It's January 1722, off Cape Apollonia, in the Gulf of Guinea, West Africa. Roberts has been taking ship after ship along the Gold Coast without resistance due to his incredible firepower. The 40-gun Royal Fortune can give most warships a run for their money. But so far, the prizes have been modest and the hauls meager. But right now, Roberts finally has something substantial in his sights. A 200-ton English slave ship belonging to the Royal Africa Company, the 12-gun King Solomon. The pirates fire a warning shot at the English. Captain Joseph Traherne of King Solomon knows his vessel cannot overpower nor outrun the great pirate frigate. Still, they sail on. The Royal Fortune cannot get close enough to board, so Roberts sends his quartermaster, William Magnus, in a longboat stuffed with pirates to seize command. Before they depart, Roberts warns his quartermaster to keep the men in line. Many are becoming too ferocious, too unruly. He wants both hostages and cargo delivered unharmed. The merchant captain Traherne sees the longboat approach. He won't surrender without a fight. His ship's supplies, ammunition and weapons are meant for the very vessels defending the waters of West Africa against Roberts and his kind. He orders his men to take up arms. Hoping to inspire his men, Traherne grabs his own musket and fires a shot at the approaching pirates. But they continue to close in. From the longboat, Magnus warns that any resistance will be met without mercy. No quarter will be given. This sends a chill down the spines of the English sailors. They all heard the stories. Hell, everyone knows of Bart Roberts and his crew of sea devils. Taking one last look at the pirates' filthy faces and frenzied-looking eyes, Traherne's crew lay down their arms. Today is not a good day to die, especially not for the Royal Africa Company. The pirates board King Solomon, and Traherne is taken prisoner. The cutthroats roar with laughter as they fall on the defiant merchant captain. Minutes later, he's writhing on the deck, groaning. His clothes are covered in blood, and several of his ribs are broken. Meanwhile, the pirates raid the ship of valuables. Anything they do not want is tossed overboard. But suddenly, fights are breaking out throughout the ship amongst the thieving pirates. Two sailors bicker over the ownership of a crystal glass. They swing fists at each other. Blades are drawn. The glass drops and shatters. Roberts' quartermaster, Magnus, finds more pirates fighting in the hold over ownership of a backgammon table. One threatens to blow the other's brains out if he doesn't give it up. Magnus manages to break up the fight and get the boarding party back in line before any shots are fired. They all know the rules over distributing the haul, and there's plenty of loot to go around. But the rules are becoming hard to enforce. Discipline 
is deteriorating. Sailing away from the smoldering King Solomon. Beneath Roberts' hard exterior, he is worried. He knows discontent is festering amongst his crew, and the only way to keep his difficult men loyal is with more violence and more looting. But their thirst seems unquenchable. He knows if he shows weakness, everything he has built will be destroyed. He has little choice. He must stay the course. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's early February 1721, in the Caribbean, a year before the attack on the King Solomon in West Africa. Roberts has risen to become a near-unstoppable force. It's a reign of terror the likes of which has never been seen. He's taken hundreds of ships, raided ports and leveled towns, from fortifications to fishing villages. All have felt his wrath, and no one escapes unscathed. His terrorizing has brought West Indies trade to standstill. Since 1720, the Board of Trade has been flooded with reports of Roberts' attacks. They fear another Blackbeard has emerged. In reality, 
Roberts is something far worse. The Royal Navy now suspect Roberts will head east, attacking British trade routes in West Africa. The Admiralty orders two warships to Africa. Captain Shalona Olga's 50-gun, 5th-rate HMS Swallow and the smaller HMS Weymouth. The English know that an attack on the Royal Africa Company may be imminent. Sending warships may sound like an obvious precaution, but it's unusual and speaks volumes about the threat Roberts now poses. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. We are often given this narrative of pirates versus the Navy as the main story of this period. The reality is much more messy, and in fact, the Navy's role in suppressing piracy was more, I guess, passive than I guess it gets credit for. And this is, I guess, the exceptional case that proves the rule in some regards, that Robert's spree of attacks had become so troublesome that it elicited the dispatch of a pretty, you know, significant naval force to try to track down this specific crew is unusual. Roberts, by a petty combination of luck, aggression, and persistence, had racked up so many successful attacks that it was becoming, in some ways, a bit of a public relations issue. The other big factor here is the reports that Roberts was headed for West Africa would have been concerning to the Royal Africa Company. They had been burned already when Edward England and Davis had gone on a long tear along the West African coast. So the thought of another season of piracy in the West African region was something the Royal Africa Company was obviously very keen to avoid. And this was, at the time, a massive part of the British imperial economy. So there is a lot of pressure probably coming down on the Admiralty to take steps that they might otherwise not usually do. In the warm Caribbean waters of St. Luce, Bart Roberts's crew just slaughtered 75 Dutch merchant sailors and seized their ship. Sailing away with the captured vessel, Roberts decides it is time to ship out and head to Africa. But before he can leave, he has a promise he wants to keep. A promise of revenge against the people of Martinique, who once attempted to hunt him down. Roberts uses the Dutch vessel as a decoy to entrap the people of Martinique. Sailing around the island, Roberts falsely signals to local traders that he is an unlicensed slaver. The lure of cheap labor is irresistible. Anchoring off the isolated bay of St. Luce, the pirates wait like a spider at the center of a web. One by one, French sloops sail into the bay, carrying gold and silver coins ready to trade. On cue, Roberts takes each ship by surprise. It's a bloodbath. The French captives are whipped. Others are strung up and shot. Fourteen ships are taken and 13 of them are burnt. But not all the sailors are murdered. A handful are kept alive and placed aboard the remaining French sloop and sent back to the governor of Martinique as witnesses to the horror. It's a warning 
not only to the people of Martinique, but to anyone who'd oppose him, including any new recruits in his own crew who'd question his authority. It is difficult to really explain what specifically made them, in some contexts, willing to commit such extraordinary violence. And I think part of that is there's an intimidation factor. Often, you know, particularly after the stories have circulated about Robert's reputation, most vessels surrender, pay a ransom, and move on. I think there's also a secondary layer here, though, which is that Roberts has accumulated a large number of recent recruits or prisoners. And so his ship is simultaneously a pirate ship and in some ways a prison ship. And committing extreme acts of violence is something that is going to be witnessed by everyone on board. And it is going to really send a message to the prisoners on Roberts' ship that they are not to be trifled with and to intimidate anyone who might be thinking of potentially rising up against Roberts. It's early spring 1721. Roberts' fleet now consists of his flagship, the Royal Fortune, his consort, Good Fortune, and the French pirate, La Palisse, aboard the Sea King. They've done well these past months, but it's time to move on. Not only are prizes drying up, colonial resistance is growing too. The Leeward Islands have requested naval reinforcements. In Virginia, Governor Spotswood, the man responsible for killing Blackbeard, has set up 54 gun batteries in case Roberts attempts an assault on his colony. Roberts thinks it's time to sail to West Africa. But not everyone wants to go. The French pirate La Balisse feels it's time to go it alone and breaks from the fleet. Perhaps he's weary of Roberts' growing reputation. With the wind in their sails, the pirates begin the voyage across the Atlantic. But more problems are brewing amongst the crew. Some voice doubts about their course. Many wanted to go south with La Palisse. Thomas Anstis, the commander of the Good Fortune, feels Roberts is becoming unapproachable, making decisions unilaterally. He too considers breaking with the company. But will his crew agree? They've witnessed the punishments served up to those who cross Roberts. Although pirate ships are largely democratic, it's a tightrope balancing act for any commander, authoritarian control versus collective rule. Roberts must keep individuals happy while maintaining overall power. Managing these men is tough. After Kennedy absconded back in Brazil and a handful of attempts by pressed men to flee or mutiny, Roberts is operating as the highest authority. His articles make it clear the discord sown by his crew will be met with either death or marooning. Nevertheless, agitation is festering, and Roberts feels it. With a few hundred crew members, mutiny is always at the back of his mind, and the captain is always the first to fall. We've already seen Kennedy sail off in the night. In terms of bitter experience, Roberts has encountered the dangers of too loose of an organization twice, right? Which is eventually a very loose organization can very easily fracture. There is pressure building to assume a more authoritarian style 
because it's the best way to protect himself and to counter some of the potential factionalism. He's operating in a much more dangerous, restricted environment. And that is going to incentivize him to take a much firmer hand with the members of his crew. Anstis has had enough. It's the night of April 18th, 1721, somewhere in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. The pirate fleet sails in a staggered line under a starry sky. Most of the crews are down for the night. Roberts sleeps in his cabin, cradled by the ship's rocking. Anstis watches the royal fortune through his spyglass. His crew have made a choice. They won't follow Roberts any further, but they dare not enter into a confrontation with him either. Under the cover of darkness, the good fortune turns about and cuts away, vanishing into the night, never to be seen by Roberts again. It's easy to imagine the fury Roberts may have felt upon discovering yet another betrayal. But then again, perhaps it's no bad thing. If Roberts has learned anything, it's to be wary of malcontents. He knew that there were malcontents within his crew. And he would have been fairly confident that many of them were no doubt pushing Anstis to leave. So in some regards, Anstis may have really sailed off with a portion of Robert's crew that he was already suspicious of or concerned with, and in some ways, you know, consolidated Robert's position, right, by getting rid of some of his rivals or getting rid of members of the crew who were griping, who were displeased with Robert's. They sail off with Anstis and they're no longer Robert's problem. In late April 1721, the Royal Fortune arrives off the Cape Verde Islands in northwest Africa, where Roberts turns south for the Gambia and Sierra Leone. Their holds are packed with purloined goods lifted from their numerous victims. Roberts knows just where to go to exchange the cargo for gold. All Roberts doesn't know is that English warships are already patrolling the area anticipating his arrival. Captain Shalona Ogle, a 40-year-old veteran of two wars and a career Navy officer since the age of 16, has read the chilling reports of Roberts's criminality. Aboard the HMS Swallow and flanked by the Weymouth, he sails to Sierra Leone. Having escorted a convoy of East Africa Company ships, Ogle now intends to make good on the second part of his mission, scouring the region for pirates. Unknown to both Ogle and Roberts aboard the Royal Fortune, they narrowly miss running straight into each other. And for the next few months, the Navy will find itself blind to Roberts' actions, and Roberts will remain unaware of how close they came to disaster. Through late spring and early summer of 1721, Roberts continues to pirate with aplomb. At the mouth of the Senegal River, he captures two French merchant ships, boosting his fleet. The new ships are rechristened the Ranger and Little Ranger, and now sail in consort to his flagship, the Royal Fortune. Three pirate ships, crewed with over 200 pirates. It's a sizable force, 
For several months, they stalked the Gambian coast, plundering without pause, taking prize after prize. Finally arriving at Sierra Leone in June, where they take a break to indulge in some shore leave. They trade with the locals, but the pirates also seek out a friendly face. John Ledston, aka Old Crackers. Ledstone is a former pirate who once sailed under Howell Davis. Now he's a black market trader and a pimp. He operates the best brothels in the area, and Roberts' crew happily indulge. For his men, this may be just the tonic to their frustrations. For the captain, it's vital to managing morale. It is very much a moment that allows Roberts to perhaps dissipate some of the built-up tension, the just general sort of discontent that is going to accrue on any long voyage of any ship, and particularly on a pirate ship that have had, they've definitely had their ups and downs, and more downs than ups in the recent months. But I do think it speaks to Roberts' awareness of the need to somehow begin to diffuse the tension with no pirate-friendly ports, the services provided by local agents like Ledstone are essential to pirating in West Africa. Aside from trading goods and providing booze and brothels, Old Crackers also deals in local intelligence. It's only now that Roberts learns of how close they were to running into the Royal Navy. He discovers that the English warships have recently passed by, headed south, cruising down towards the Bight of Biafra, he also discovers that they're not due to return until December. By pure chance, they are in fact a few weeks behind their would-be pursuers, essentially hidden in their wake. Roberts has a comfortable margin for error and a free path to continue pillaging unhindered. It's the 8th of August, 1721. Roberts has left Sierra Leone and is en route to Weda one of the richest ports in West Africa. As he sails off Point Sestos in modern-day Liberia, the pirates see an anchored Royal African Company frigate slaver named the Onslow. It's an impressively sized ship, 410 tons with 12 guns, and currently in possession of a cargo worth 9,000 pounds, well over 1 million pounds by today's standards. And by more good fortune, the ship has been left poorly defended. With the captain and crew mostly ashore, the pirates quickly seize the Onslow. The sailors left aboard are pressed into joining the pirates. Others are roughed up and beaten. Passengers are abused and robbed. One terrified woman is taken to the gunroom and horrifically raped multiple times. It's unknown if Roberts has any personal misgivings about it. His articles prohibit sex on board his own ships, but clearly he leaves his men to run riot. It's precisely the kind of calculated callousness that defines a successful pirate captain. Once all is said and done, Roberts takes the Onslow. He refits her as his new flagship, transferring the 40 or so guns and munitions, and renames her, unsurprisingly, the Royal Fortune. The fourth of Roberts' ships to carry the name. Perhaps he's superstitious. But Fortune does seem to be on their side, 
for now. Through autumn and winter 1721, Roberts's fleet sails down the coast of Guinea, pirating to their black heart's content. Sail after sail, ship after ship, the tally continues to mount up, as does the body count of their victims. Soon, even Roberts has lost track of the total number of prizes they've taken. And yet, his ever-growing crew is increasingly hard to keep satisfied. In fact, they're insatiable. It's easy to imagine that even in the midst of this period of unparalleled success, Roberts might start to question when is enough. Enough. For a teetotal Christian turned vicious pirate commodore, one wonders what internal struggles must have gone through Roberts' head. It's November 1721. The Royal Fortune sails off the Gold Coast of Guinea, en route to Widda. The evening is cool. Roberts sits in the captain's cabin, staring at the well-thumbed pages of his worn-out Bible. But Roberts isn't reading. His mind is preoccupied, thinking about the years of pillaging, plundering, and slaughtering. His crew's escalating violence. He's always known the cost of pirating means he must live out the rest of his life at sea. However many days remain, they'll be spent on the run. His horse surpasses predecessors, Kid, Avery, Bellamy, Blackbeard, none can compare with his innumerable crimes. His attacks are also uniquely destructive, more violent, more ruthless. His power and success comes from commanding such a large crew. His authority guaranteed by allowing his men to do as they please, to maim and torture in ways most of his predecessors would have balked at. Roberts looks up from his Bible. On deck, the crew drunkenly sing as the musicians play shanties. But it no longer brings a smile to his face. He knows these drunken devils are becoming harder to control. Robert snarls and slaps his Bible shut. Like it or not, this is the path he chose. Come hell or high water, he must keep to their course. So there's that famous line, right? A short life and a merry one shall be my motto. And I think most people read that and take it at face value as this kind of devil-may-care expression of fatalistic acceptance. But another way of reading it is as a kind of melancholy lament. I think it's very plausible that, you know, we think of Roberts and, and pirates in general often as these protagonists in a novel, right? As the authors of their careers, men who risked everything for fame and fortune. And yet, when we look into their actual experiences, you realize how much of their lives were governed by circumstance and happenstance along the way. January, 1722. 
entering the harbour at Widder. The pirate colours fly aloft. The musicians play the recognisable war anthem, signalling the attack. The port is an easy target. The Royal Africa Company's fort is far inland. They defend against any seaborne attacks. As Roberts enters the harbour with the Royal Fortune, the Ranger and Little Ranger, white flags instantly go up. The merchant captains abandon their vessels, running ashore to safety. The ships are easily captured. But it's not the vessels Roberts wants. Most of them are stripped down to carry as much human cargo as possible. Roberts is after hard cash, and he knows how to get it. The pirates hold the abandoned ships for ransom. Most of the captains pay up. Except Captain Fletcher of the Porcupine. He refuses. Roberts orders his crewman, John Walden, known as Miss Nanny, to bring over the enslaved people held aboard and to burn Fletcher's ship to the waterline. But things don't go according to plan. Aboard the Porcupine, Miss Nanny refuses to unchain the captives and move them. Suddenly, Roberts hears blood-chilling screams. Fletcher's ship is on fire with the enslaved still trapped in the hold. A grimace of horror spreads across Roberts' face, listening to the ear-piercing wails. Supposedly, according to Charles Johnson, some jumped overboard from the flame and were seized by sharks, and in their sights torn limb from limb alive. A cruelty unparalleled. Certainly the last statement rings of truth. Even if Roberts is only concerned with Miss Nanny's insubordination, he cannot punish him. His authority is teetering on the edge. The violence and the disorder and the destructiveness of Robert's crew is becoming more intense, right? And more difficult to really rein in or to channel and direct in particular ways. So for Roberts, it's a conundrum, right? If he cracks down on Walden, if he if he punishes him, are these other old standards gonna go along with it, right? Or is he going to potentially accidentally precipitate a mutiny against himself. So while Roberts is nominally in control of the crew, I think he also understood that. Controlling his rabble of a crew isn't the only troubling thing for Bart Roberts. While raiding the port, the pirates discover a batch of official correspondence between Royal African Company officials. One letter in particular seizes Roberts' attention. It seems news of their depredations has caught up with them. The letter states that Roberts' ships were spotted off Cape Three Points and that the warship the HMS Swallow has been made aware of their presence in the area and is even now chasing them down. Roberts is concerned. He didn't expect the Swallow to be so close by. He thought he had more time. Neither Roberts nor his men desire to go head-to-head -head with a man of war. They quickly depart Widder and hole up on the island of Annabon. It's another close call for Roberts. But the net is closing. Once again, their depredations are their undoing. Two days later, HMS Swallow arrives in Widder to find the devastation. 
Captain Ogle now knows where the pirates are heading, and how close at hand they really are. It's the morning of February 5th, 1722, two weeks after the attack on Widder. Roberts is careening off Cape Lopez on the coast of Gabon. Repairs on the vessels are slow. Most of Roberts' crew are drunk and useless. Discipline is virtually impossible. Ashore, duels are taking place. Roberts' control is precarious to say the least. Roberts is taking a moment of solitude when a crewman bursts in and announces a large Portuguese trader is in sight. An easy capture, Roberts thinks, and something for his men to focus on. Roberts orders his top lieutenant, Mr. Skirm, to take the ranger and seize the vessel. The ranger chases after the fleeing merchant ship, but as soon as the pirates are out of sight and earshot of their brethren, the tables turn. The ship is no trader. It's the swallow in disguise. As the British flag is run up the mainmast, the pirates realize their error. They've fallen into Captain Ogle's trap, and there is no escape. The Swallow runs out the cannons on its lower gun deck and turns hard to starboard, exposing her broadside. She fires, crippling the pirate ship. Skirm returns fire, but another volley of cannon blasts the ranger. Several pirates are killed, and Skirm is blown over, his leg severed by the explosion. The pirates have no choice. They surrender to Ogle. All 120 of them. And Roberts is next. It's February 10th. Skirm has been gone for days. Roberts is sitting in his cabin, dining on a breakfast of eggs and salt pork. But he's uneasy still awaiting Skirm's return. He must wonder, has he been betrayed again? Or has something else gone amiss? Taking another bite of eggs, a crewman bursts into Roberts' cabin, saying another ship has been spotted. And it's not Skirm. Despite the large vessel flying under French colors, one of the pirates, himself having served in the Navy, correctly identifies her. It's the 50-gun warship HMS Swallow. Roberts' crew of around 150 men are mostly wasted, having drunk themselves stupid for the preceding days and nights. They're in no condition to fight. Nevertheless, Roberts has no choice. He emerges from his cabin, dressed in a fine crimson damask waistcoat and breeches. He wears a large hat with a red feather stuck in it, a gold chain around his neck, and pistols strapped to the sling around his chest. He orders the Royal Fortune to set off, leaving behind the Korean Little Ranger. The Fortune sails under full sail with the wind and bears down on the Swallow. Roberts charges headfirst into his opponent. The two warships are evenly matched, but even with a sober crew, Roberts knows better than to engage a Navy vessel head-on. It's a bold bluff. Roberts makes to engage, but plans to blow straight past the Swallow and escape into the open water beyond. 
Roberts orders the Royal Fortune within firing range, encouraging the nervous crew to hold steady and brace for impact. Reluctantly, the pale-looking pirate helmsman anxiously keeps on the collision course. Passing alongside, the two ships exchange broadsides at an almost point-blank range. A maelstrom of lead, grape shot, and musket fire rake the deck as 22-pound cannonballs smash into the hull of the Royal Fortune. Screaming above the chaos erupting all around him, Roberts orders the helmsman to keep the course. But in the confusion, panicking, the helmsman turns the Royal Fortune to starboard. Instead of passing her, the pirates expose their stern to the swallow, their sitting ducks. The English sailors blast the pirates with their swivel guns and small arms, picking off the pirates with ease. The swallow gains, regularly turning to unleash another volley of cannon fire. Roberts stands on the deck, unmoved by the rigging collapsing above his head or the sight of his crewmen lying dead or dying all about him. Almost in a daze, he lets the devastation wash over him. Merrily to hell, he swore he'd go. A moment later, another volley of grape shot sweeps the deck. Roberts is struck in the neck. He stumbles, blood gushing from the wound and falls, collapsing over a cannon. Rushing to his body, the helmsman discovers Captain Bart Roberts is dead. Amid the gunfire, two of Roberts' men throw his body into the ocean. With the fortune crippled, the writing is on the wall. The crew also throw the copy of Roberts' famous pirate articles overboard. No use handing their captors signed confessions of their crimes. The pirates are keen to surrender, letting loose the sails and coming about. Well, not every pirate. The boatswain, James Phillip, is determined to make good on his captain's promise to never be taken alive. Running towards the hold with a lit flame, he makes for the magazine to set off the gunpowder and screams, let us all go to hell together. But two pirates tackle Philip before he can succeed. Better to take their chances at trial. Bart Roberts' reign of terror is finally over. And his death sends seismic shocks through the Atlantic world. An unequivocal sign of the Navy's determination to end the scourge of piracy for good. In the coming days, after returning to Cape Coast Castle, over 250 captured pirates will face trial. In a grim parade, 52 pirates are hanged immediately. 37 pirates are sentenced to a life of hard labor, ironically, in the gold mines of the Guinea coast, while others are transported to the colonies or imprisoned in London. Incredibly, 79 pirates are acquitted, successfully proving that they were forced against their will to join Roberts' crew. Not something that applies to the non-white crewmen. Another 75 pirates are black, whether cargo, captives, or crew. All are sold back into slavery, no questions asked. For many, 
the end of Bart Roberts signifies the end of the golden age of piracy and underlines the supremacy of the Royal Navy at sea. The death of Bart Roberts is perhaps the sort of last story of a crew that appeared to potentially be in a position to challenge Britain's dominion over the Atlantic Ocean without necessarily paying the price. And the fact is, they did ultimately get tracked down and defeated. So it's, you know, is it the end of the Golden Age? I think it's very much a watershed moment in this period. And we'll see, obviously, after Roberts, there are other crews that do commit piracy, but nobody ever manages to accrue the amount of success and attention that Roberts did. So in terms of the the last real period where pirates were potentially considered to be in a position to challenge British hegemony, I think Roberts' death maybe is the final nail in the coffin to that. And in the end, he goes out not with a bang, but a whimper. Like Blackbeard before him, Roberts' strength was such that trade would come to a standstill and most warships would avoid confrontation. But in the end, just like Blackbeard, when finally forced to fight, they're wiped out with ease. An observation made even by the Swallow's surgeon. The pirates, though singly fellows of courage, yet wanting such a tie of order to unite that force, were a contemptible enemy. Not a single royal sailor lost their life in the exchange. Given the scope of Bart Roberts's career, the particular moral code he lived by, and the personal convictions as recorded by witnesses, it's perhaps surprising his impact on popular culture isn't greater, still overshadowed by arguably lesser pirates like Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, or Bonnie and Reed. Over the many subsequent decades, whose story tends to survive comes down to factors that are a little less about what was important to people in the 1720s and more about what endures or captures the imagination. I think Bart Roberts' story is fascinating, but it just doesn't maybe lend itself as neatly to the imaginary of pirates that someone like Blackbeard does. Um, but in his time, Bart Roberts was probably considered much more formidable and certainly much more famous than Blackbeard was. He had a longer career, he sailed to more places, he definitely captured more ships, and he created a heck of a lot more problems over time. But maybe his one mistake was he should have had a cooler hat. The years that follow might relegate Roberts's memory. Other names are better remembered. But his record exceeds any other Golden Age pirate. He was a legend in his own lifetime. And in February 1722, death looms large over the Atlantic world. If the dread pirate Roberts could so easily be vanquished, what chance of survival does any pirate now have? The end of piracy may truly be at hand. Next time on Real Pirates. The last few years of the Golden Age read like a sorry lament for a bygone age. 
littered as it is with the accounts of those who stayed at the party too long. Driven to the ends of the earth, looking for prizes. Hunted all the way by Europe's navies, pirate hunters and privateers. And few stories are as sorry as that of that traitor, Bart Roberts' one-time quartermaster, Walter Kennedy. That's next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.